What's up, guys? We are in a prison. No, no we're in Coolidge. Same thing. <laughs> the coolidgest place on campus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we're back for the 15th episode. Um, the World Cup is going on, so I've had a life for the past month, like only once every four years I can live like that. Um, watch every game, um, enjoy every game, get depressed, get happy, you know go through all the emotional roller coasters that you know people go through in their lives but I go through it in a month just in a month yeah and then nothing else happens for Marco yeah then it's I just go into hibernation mode and <laughs> no I, I've only gone to hibernation mode that time I, I got food poisoning from from yes. work a couple weeks I ago I don't think it was food I still don't think it's food poisoning they can't that's just big claim that would have been the news okay I think but it's in the, of, uh, just a virus. It, it might be conspiracy theory but you know what sure. Yeah. But, you know, talking about sports, and we're not going to talk about Liver King, who's a fraud. They, <laughs> they caught him uh, $10,000 of steroids. Um, you know, I do, I do steroids, and I don't do that much. No, just kidding. I don't do steroids. Um, I don't. Um, so I don't think you have a hard time convincing people. <laughs> like, you're, you're buff. But you're they, not like they, they, they've asked me three times at the gym if I do steroids, mm. and I said, not yet. Mm. Well, you know, when I get to 70 years old, I don't want to be, you know, a skinny old man i want to be the strong one okay i want to i want everybody else in like those like houses where they take all the elderly you know where they nursing homes n- nursing homes yeah i want to be the strongest one there but you know moving into sport you know we got to talk about the world cup because it's it's the biggest stuff ever in the world in the year started um our predictions from the last video are they were like all over the place the players i said you gotta watch in general were really good um i'm all i got something right i did get saudi arabia right everyone was praying on my downfall that i would not get one right i guessed it maybe not guess i'm gonna say that i had i made a hypothesis and i was right she said they would beat argentina and yeah they did and guess what happened so i'm gonna be making basically what's gonna happen is i'm gonna be making unbiased completely random guesses on my part and marco's gonna give us like his educated intelligent guesses guesses and we're gonna see who gets more right and then if um she gets more right than me i gotta thank her to dinner because i'm the expert i'm supposed to be at least or i like to say so so let's see if i can take a time to get again but before that we've got to review what's happened so far okay so um we're gonna go into the biggest surprises you know before the round of 16. Number one, Morocco has to be Morocco. It's uh, the fourth African team to make it to quarterfinals in the history of the World Cup. Um, they've won each of their last eight games. Well, they, they're unbeaten in each of their last eight games. They beat Spain on penalties. Spain cannot shoot any penalties. That's really funny because the manager said, uh, I made them do a thousand penalty kicks before the match. So we wouldn't lose in a penalty kick, uh, huh. shootout. And they missed every penalty they took. Yeah. Well. No hits, all misses. Uh, I am kidding. That's, that's, that actually scared me. We're leaving this blooper. We're leaving it. That was like a primal scream. Okay, continue. Okay, so one thing you got to watch, they're going to play Portugal. Portugal played great. <laughs> so red now okay go. Portugal played really well against Switzerland so it's gonna be a good matchup okay, <laughs> okay no. um Morocco has probably one of the best defenses 
in the World Cup. They they haven't been behind in any match, so let's see how it goes. Um, the next one is Amalia's favorite country. <laughs> okay, I want to go to Japan. My favorite country, Japan, because of Germany and Spain in the group stage of the tournament. In both games, Japan came back from being down one to zero to win two to one. Hmm. Japan lost in a penalty shootout though versus Croatia, but beat them to the quarterfinals. But it's it's still good, you know. Nobody expected that from Japan in, yeah. in one of the groups of death. Um, groups of death. Yeah, it was one of the hardest groups. Spain okay. and Germany, both of them are out by now. That's true. Um, but uh, you know, we're going to talk about Australia, right, mate? Um, not not only is Australia famous because of the koalas and just of that funny the video. Deadly, dead, deadly yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they have all the deadly animals that they could want, and because that guy, uh, Steve Irwin, was from there. And the guy that beat up that kangaroo for oh, yeah. taking his dog. Yeah. Um, Australians are like the Florida men of the world, you know. Uh, but you know what they did? They, they went against the odds. They went through to the round of 16. Um, their manager was amazing in terms of tactics, really good defensive approach. Um, and he had, you know, a really mediocre team, I would say bad team compared to the rest. And he did what he, the best he could with it. Um, they lost against France at the beginning, but then they went on to beat um, Tunisia, and then they drew against Denmark and went through. So, Graham Arnold, the manager, um, he gets my praise. You know, what we should also do so. Whichever we should only consider countries to study abroad to, depending on if they win the World Cup. Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to Saudi Arabia because they're not winning the World Cup. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> Unless you really want to go. To, you want to go to Iran? <laughs> okay. I, Good thing Ukraine didn't make the World well, Cup. Well, not win the World Cup, but one of the people that, okay, that wins yeah. our prediction. Yeah, too bad Ukraine didn't, didn't get up there, right? Um, yeah, these poor war-stricken countries. I definitely want to say you um, You know, now we're going to go into the biggest disappointments. And Amalia's going to oh, get us started, okay. as she's an, a specialist in it. Because I am also a big disappointment. <laughs> Germany, <laughs> fun fact, my family literally got me a hoodie that said embarrassment on it for Christmas. I hope and you my, got your brother the same thing. My brother got disappointment. So. Oh. <laughs> anyway, um, Germany went to the tournament with many doubts about their defense abilities, and they truly made those doubts seem generous. This is the second World Cup in a row that Germany exits in the group stage. Another disappointment has been Belgium. Belgium's golden generation ended as well as Kanye and Kim's relationship. Oh, shit. Oh, my. Funny, Marco. News outlets reported that key players in the Belgium dressing room got into a fight and had to be split by Romelu Lukaku. They exited the tournament in the group stage and their manager resigned after the match. Yeah, that was a big shock. That's so funny. Yeah, and. Oh, my gosh. They, I mean, they're so talented. They had all these players in their prime, and you know, they have nothing to show for it. Wow. Uh, they're like that kid that goes to college and goes like three years and then leaves the third year, and never gets his degree. You know, he was he was in college, but he never got anything to show for it. We're not there yet, so we can't we're not even over that hump. Okay. So you can't, okay. What if we're those people? Oh, lastly, I want to talk about Spain, and they became Spain without the S. Pain. Um. <laughs> Uh, they were so so good in possession like they could keep the ball for ages they completed over a thousand passes in one game yet all they did was pass the ball around you know <laughs> they they never 
got into the end zone, like end zone, because they they barely scored goals except the match against Costa Rica. They only won that match, and then they went out against Croatia and penalty shootout. Uh, as we said before, they missed all their penalties. Um, yeah, it was well, against Morocco. Sorry, and um, yeah, you know they beat they they couldn't beat Japan. They were um, they were up against them. And they were so boring in terms of not having anything to show for it. So I'm glad they're out. Plus, like, <laughs> Spanish people, um, they made fun of the Germans who were going out. So, karma. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's just a point of the game. Okay. Best players. Wow. Do you hear? Okay. Kylian Mbappe. 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 Oh, okay. Five goals, two assists, seven matches. The stats speak for themselves. He's now at nine WC goals in 11 World Cup games across two World Cups. Yeah, the, this kid's special um, in, the, in the best of ways. Um, he's such a talented player. He's so fast. He gets him behind. It's going to be really interesting to see how England is going to be able to defend against him. Mm-hmm. Um, because if not, um, it's going to be like France's defense in World War II when G- Germany invaded. Because Mbappe is just too good for most Ugh. defenders. Someone's doing their gen eds this semester. <laughs> I watch documentaries <laughs> once yeah. in a while. Okay, Bruno Fernandez. Bruno has racked up two goals and three assists in two WC games. He has been a metronome in this Portugal side and has silenced his doubters. Yeah, especially with um, Michael Cristiano Ronaldo being um, below par at this World Cup. Um, Bruno has stepped up being a leader in the team. Uh, Loved watching him play. He's a great player. Um, and then a third player that I, I would um, nominate for best player is Richarlison. He's had uh, three goals, three games. Um, that's a goal per game. Um, he scored the goal of the tournament already, missing bicycle kick against... The goal running in, Been really bad for Tottenham this season. I wouldn't say really bad, but he hasn't been that good as he was at Everton. And then he's been so good at this World Cup. You know, R9, the original Ronaldo, the bigger one. I want, I don't want to say the fatter one, but the, the <laughs> bigger one. Like He would be so proud about it. And fourth player, Sofian Amrabat. Uh, the Moroccan international has been so good. He's um, everywhere in the midfield. He's bossed a midfield battle against Gabi, Pedri, and Busquets in that match, Morocco versus Spain. Um, his tackles have been key. His... He's an initiator of great plays with his long balls um, to cause counterattacks. I would say you got to watch him, and a bunch of teams are watching him. They want him from Fiorentina, and he might get a transfer. So, kudos to him. Most disappointing players, Kevin De Bruyne, KDB, has been unrecognizable this tournament. His passing has been off, and his loss of possession during key parts of the games has been counterproductive for Belgium. He's in his prime, and a lot more was expected from him in this tournament. Aww. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lautaro Martinez from Inter and Argentina. Um, you know, Argentina are in the quarterfinals, but he's been terrible for them. Um, mm-hmm. His passing, um, you know, hasn't been that good in the final third. His finishing has been terrible. He's missed some key chances that even Minan would make. Uh, Minan, that's how British people say my grandma. You wouldn't make them go. Don't worry. I would. I would. <laughs> I would. Don't worry. I would. Uh, if I had a couple of tries, I would. <laughs> um, yeah, but the number nine spot in Lalbi Celeste is probably taken by um, 
um, Julian Alvarez, who has been amazing this World Cup. After Messi, I would say the best Argentina player. Um, and then Darwin Nunez. Um, many were hoping that Nunez was going to, you know, silence the haters, but I think he just gained more haters as World Cup. Because for Liverpool, he's been, you know, below expectations, and then he failed to contribute anything for Uruguay this World Cup. But he's young. He's probably got a good career ahead of him. And now there were eight. We're going to talk about our <laughs> predictions for the quarterfinals and okay. so on. Um, is going to give us her guesses. Yeah, so I'm just looking at this right here. Okay, because I don't know. All right, so which one are we starting at? Um, start from, so start here. And then so these, these are the ones. These two, they're going to go against each other. Yeah, okay. The winner of each one. Yeah. Okay, starting Fine. from the left. Okay, so, yeah. so America. No, 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 wait. Yeah. Those ones. America's not a country, it's the USA. <laughs> okay, so remind me what these two countries are. Netherlands, Argentina. Okay, so Netherlands, Argentina. Netherlands. Netherlands? Yeah. And then... What is this one? Croatia versus Brazil. Croatia. Croatia? Mm-hmm. Okay, this one? You know, the, you know those. What? You gotta know those countries. I know those countries, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Croatia won more than I've seen. I've seen Croatia more there than I've seen Brazil. So who do you think is going to be the, the semifinals? On, on, oh, on these four? Yeah, out of those four. Who's um, going to go to semis? You said Croatia and... Croatia and um, Netherlands. Netherlands? Okay. Yeah. And then who's going to win between Croatia and Netherlands to go to the final? Netherlands. Okay, Netherlands goes, from, goes to the final. That's one side of the bracket. And I want to say Brazil, but like, I don't know. Now the other side. Okay, what's, what, are, what, are that? what is that? That's England. <laughs> England, and what's that one? France. France, okay. <laughs> what are you, Super Smash Bros? All right. You in France. I'm going to say England. The French Indian were not very nice, but I went to Canada this weekend, so. Okay. Okay, what's these? That's Morocco and Portugal. Morocco. Morocco? Yeah. Wow. Portugal has like no open land to even play soccer on. When I went there, it was all like an island. <laughs> okay, anyway. anyway. So who wins so, between England and Morocco? Okay. England. Because all their players are from like every they're not English. So they, it's they have a like, couple of them, you know, the ones that don't go to yeah. the dentist. I think it's English, though. Get it? Because okay. English people don't go to the dentist. Oh, yeah, no. Okay. England. So the final is going to be England versus Netherlands. Yeah. Who are you, who are you tipping for the, for the World Cup as the winners? I think... No, no. I'm not seeing... Um, I'm going to say... Netherlands. Okay, Amali just said Netherlands is winning the World Cup. I'm just, I just want to put it there. Now my turn of making an educated okay. uh, prediction. I would say uh, the first quarterfinal, Argentina versus Netherlands. Argentina is going through. It's going to be a tight match, but Messi is going to be the difference. The other quarterfinal, Croatia versus Brazil. Brazil's winning. Mm-hmm. They're going to win like 3-0. And then uh, England versus France. France goes through. Mbappe is going to be the difference um, because Harry Maguire... Is good in the World Cup, but he's no match for Mbappe's speed. Morocco versus Portugal, Portugal. Um, <laughs> we have the exact opposite. So then it's going to be um, Argentina versus Brazil, one semifinal, and I'm saying Brazil's winning there. They just have a better overall team, and the morale is so good there. Uh, they're going to be dancing all over Argentina. And um, 
Then we're going France versus Portugal. I'm saying France. Sorry, Ronaldo, but uh, France. And the final Brazil versus France, I'm saying France. Mbappe is going to be the difference. Mbappe is going to be the difference. And I think Brazil's defense hasn't been as tested as France's has been already. So, um, yeah, expect a really good rest of the tournament. And now I want to talk about something else. Um, oh. We finished our recap of the World Cup. I want to talk about the PVTO. So we're, oh. get, we're, <laughs> we're working this event, um, a basketball tournament. I'm the philanthropy director. And the mouse is going to be working in the video team. And um, I just wanted to let you guys know that there's an auction in place. We're going to be auctioning a lot of sport um, memorabilia. Um, we we got a we got a shirt signed uh, by one of the Patriots players. Um, we got a shirt. Uh, wait, we got tickets for the New England Revolution game for the Putnam Club. So that those are like really exclusive seating, and it has food and everything in the place. Like you can buy food there. It's really cool. Um, then there's. Uh, an auction for a signed Bruins um, picture of one of their best players. Uh, his last name's Hall. Um, and then we're also, we have a JD Martinez signed Red Sox photo and uh, USA women's basketball signed by the whole, you know, Olympic team for the women's side. Uh, it's signed by Brittany Gruntner. So um, it's probably, you know, I, I, no, I'm not going to go there. That's yeah. kind of unethical. But um, all, all of this money is going to Team Impact. It's a charity that's focused on giving opportunities and support to kids who have uh, chronic illness. So all the proceeds are going there. It's a very charitable act. Mm -hmm. And you can win some really cool stuff if you bid a lot of money on it, hopefully. Um, remember that what we do in this life echoes in eternity. So let's do good deeds during this Christmas break. Um, and let's move on to our interview with an expert in leadership, Dr. McCauley. We're going to have him on here right now because there's no track of time when you're recording a podcast. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. See you guys. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, guys. You know, one of the best ways to grow as leaders is to ask questions to other leaders. So we would like to welcome Dr. McCauley um, to talk about leadership and sport and his research on college athletics. Awesome, good morning, how are y'all doing this morning? <laughs> We're doing great. <laughs> good, awesome. Um, so could you give us like a brief overview of your career so far and how you got started and how you got your passion for sports? Yeah, um, so I've been at uh, the McCormick uh, uh, Department of Sport Management now, this is my second year. Uh, prior to this, I was a PhD student at the University of Connecticut. Uh, during my time there, I also worked in the UConn Athletic Department uh, on the academic side of things. So I was an academic support staff member there. Um, prior to that, I managed a bar. Um, so that was what I did you know, after my undergraduate degree before I went into grad school. Um, and then um, my career in sports are really what led me to, you know, what I do now was uh, in my undergrad, I actually was a sociology major and I was struggling to be interested in it, uh, to be 100% honest with you. And it was uh, when I went to one of my professors, it was a, a deep sort of sociological theory class. So I went to the professor and I was just like, 
I don't really care about this. Like, how do I, what do I do to make, make this uh, interesting? And they're like, well, what, what are you interested in? And I was like, I, I really like sports. And they're like, okay, just apply, you know, the theories to sports and then, you know, see what comes of it. And that's when I really got into it and really um, uh, started to, you know, understand the sociological theories and, and I get interested in that more. And that led me to um, doing an undergraduate thesis, looking at, uh, so just uh, racial disparities in college athletics, um, which then kind of like on a whim, I applied to a, a professional conference, um, you know, went by myself. I didn't have any sort of support from my department. No, no faculty member joined me. So I was just out there just by myself. And luckily uh, I met other folks and they were very kind and brought me in and under their wings. And then that's, you know, ultimately who I went to uh, study for grad school. And then, you know, now here I am. Uh, that's pretty interesting, actually, that you mentioned um, like that you didn't like sociology, but you just apply it to one of your interests. Like, I feel like, I don't know, it's a good lesson because not everyone has, like, you know, an, an inane sense for, like, business, but of course you apply that to whatever you want to do. Um, that's what actually a good advice without even realizing. But um, I also just wanted to preface for the audience, like, what's your actual, like, profession title? Because I feel like a lot of important things but it's oh yeah sorry uh yeah I guess that's important isn't it uh, <laughs> so I, I'm an assistant professor um here at uh the Mark H. McCormick Department of Sport Management um yeah so that's my my current title okay yeah um so and I, I, I mean I also find it like extremely relatable because business in a sense especially like the accounting part and all that it seems kind of boring but then I took like an internship uh, with the United Soccer League and then we were doing a lot of accounting work but it was fun because we we're talking about like tickets we we're talking about uh, match sales player values so it was just all involved in the sport and you stop seeing it just as business and the monotonous parts but I would like to follow up on the previous question and ask you what were some of the key moments that sparked your interest in uh, sport leadership uh yeah and so um, a lot of a lot of my work it's kind of looked at not necessarily leaders in the sense of uh, indiv individuals who are uh, in CEO roles or coaching roles, but I've looked a, a lot at like athlete activism and so thinking about um, you know why would athletes engage in activism or why would they risk sort of their careers wanting to create change right and, and oftentimes change within their organizations but also in society in itself and so um, when I first went to grad school that's it was at the same time that Colin Kaepernick first took his took his knee during the national anthem and me and, and my mentor uh and who was my my advisor um you know we were just talking about it and it was like wow we don't really know a lot about this stuff and and really like you know why do people do this like why do they feel compelled to want to uh, create this type of change in this type of way um, what are the outcomes of that, those sorts of things? Um, and, uh, and so that kind of just led me down the path of, of really focusing on like athlete activism. Um, I learned a lot about uh, sport leadership as well, or like leadership in general in that regard. And so, you know, I can also speak to uh, just like, you know, running an organization or being a team lead and being a coach, being a CEO, that, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, through that path as well, I've, I've come to, um, enjoy and understand just like general organizational behavior. So why do organizations behave the way they do? And 
you know, how do, how do industries and, and different moments within sort of industries shape how organizations behave? Uh, it, so I say all that to say is that, so Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, that would be a key moment. That would be a critical moment for me in, in understanding. Um, also to um, key moments for my understanding and to, or like that got me interested in studying sport leadership uh, beyond that moment. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work with college athletes, both like academically, but also uh, I used to work with uh, just a, a student athlete, college athlete, um, uh, like student organization called Collective Uplift. And that was weekly. And, and so there wasn't necessarily one singular, singular moment, but just my time and presence there and listening to the athletes and their experiences as well. Um, I think that was really important hearing how coaches treated them and then how their what their experiences were like going through the academic system and the, through the athletic system as well. That really shaped sort of my understanding and, and my desire to, you know, see like what, how can we do these things better? Um, and how can we create a more equitable, equitable system that we can both have something like college athletics, which I think is, is really great, but it is with fault, right? There's a lot of things wrong with it. And so how can we actually work and, and shape it into a way that is beneficial for everyone that is involved in it? Uh, so it seems like you kind of study like just a giant domino effect of like factors. And so that's, I don't know, that's pretty interesting. Um, but speaking of the athletes that you've witnessed, what are some traits in their leadership that you see the most? Like, I don't know, just generally, or if you have one athlete in particular that you want to mention? Yeah, um, there isn't necessarily one athlete um, I'll mention, but uh, working with athletes closely and those those who've been successful on the, on the court or on the field, on the ice, um, they're, um, I think, like, they're coachable. Right. And then I noticed that I, I work with them on the academic side. So I didn't necessarily ever have the opportunity to work with them on, you know, whatever sport that they are. But I feel as if that, that would that translated into their way that they engage in, in classroom dynamics as well. And so they were willing to listen. They were willing to uh, take feedback and criticism. They were willing to work hard and, and get better, put the time in. They recognized where they had deficits and were willing to work on those deficits. Uh, and so I think that's really important. Um, I know, you know, I don't know if I'm sort of pulling pulling back the the veil here, but I know you all uh, did send me questions beforehand and you wanted me to focus on leadership. So I can also speak to that as well in terms of like, what do, uh, what traits do leaders need? Um, in terms of leadership, right? Like I think authenticity is really, really important. And what that means is having a, a deep understanding of who you are um, and in terms of how do you, especially in the workplace, like how do you work? right? Are you a sprinter? Are you a methodical planner? Are you someone that likes to be in social spaces and gains energy from interacting and collaboration? Or are you more of like a, a solo, um, you know, independent worker that like likes to, you know, I need, a, I need my task and let me get my task done. You need to understand that. You need to understand what motivates you. You need to understand what's really important to you and what values you hold that are those sort of unshakable values that um, guide how you act and behave and perceive the world. Um, so that's that's just the authenticity portion of it. And then building off of that, you need to be uh, a good communicator. And that's a two-way communicator. So you need to be able to communicate what it is that you need as a leader, but also to you need to be able to have create channels of communication from your constituents, right? So they need to be able to communicate to you and you need to be able to listen to them and take in that information. Um, 
you need, to, you need to be able to learn and be willing to learn as well, right? We live in a really dynamic society. Society has always been dynamic. It's always changing. It's always evolving. I know it, it may appear that there's moments of stasis where we're kind of just remaining the same, but the reality is, is that there's new technologies. There's new wave, ways of doing things. Cultures shift and change, and they may not always be revolutionary, but they're they're subtle. And over time, those can really tra uh, uh, translate into large changes. And so you got to be willing to learn. And then lastly, you need to be willing to empower your constituents as well. So it can't always be on you. You have to be willing to, to work with your constituents or with your organizational members and, and empower them to be leaders as well and to, to be able to take on uh, opportunities so that they can lead in your absence or even if you are present, this like it doesn't always have to fall on your shoulders. So those would be sort of the, the, the big things that leaders really need to be able to, to have and hone in on. Well, I, I find that one of the biggest misconceptions is that every leader has to be extroverted or that there's like this specific type of leader. But in, in truth, leaders come in so many different like ways. I've met some people that lead more by example and, you know, they say something and they accomplish it. And that I find that's in a sense leadership. And then there's people that, you know, they can lead because they, they're a really loud voice. But uh, no, absolutely. And, and I'll just jump in there. It's just. Um, you know, oftentimes we hear these, you know, comments, whether we're listening to sports or, uh, you know, you're reading a news article to like a natural born leader, right? And that's not true. There's no such thing as a natural born leader. And there isn't necessarily, to your point, right, like you need to be extroverted or you need to be, an, uh, you know, greatly skilled. And that's, you know, in, in a particular set. But, you know, you need to have that, you know, deep understanding of how yourself and how you work what those unshakable values are and then you just need to be able to communicate those well and, and communication happens in so many different ways that it's not just being able to stand in front of a group of people and deliver a great speech it's not even having great one-on-one -on -one conversations there's there's many ways that you can communicate what your values are and how you want things to be done um, that can speak to the a number of different personality traits in terms of if you're an extrovert or introvert a mix of those sorts of things um, so yeah and, you know, what are some of the less common leadership traits that are really hard to achieve, but once you achieve them, it really gives you an edge? Uh, yeah, it's it's um, providing constructive criticism consistently. Uh, I think this is the hardest thing that especially young leaders or new leaders um, will struggle with the most in the sense of um, you want people to like you, right? You want to step into a space and, and you want people to, um, you know, see you as someone that they can trust them they can rely on. But that oftentimes comes at the sacrifice of providing the feedback that may be needed to elevate the standard of, of outputs or the quality of outputs. And so what happens, and this probably sounds familiar for, for a lot of folks, is that, you know, you're members like they may complete something but it's not to the standard that you like and then you end up just being like oh, I'll just do it myself right like oh, I'll just I'll just take this on and finish it myself or, or make the adjustments myself rather than taking the time and being um, consistent in this and, and every output that they do is finding the positive what do they do really well and acknowledging that but then also to saying hey like these things are not to the standard that they need we need to elevate that standard and then giving it back to them to actually accomplish that and the consistency the consistent part is the most important part of this because if you're not consistent in this if you're only doing it sometimes or every other time or, or only every once in a while then it it can be you know 
troublesome for the employee or for the member. It's like, well, last time you didn't say anything, or why is it after you know so many times of me doing something, now you're saying something that can create this uh, distrust between you and, and your members as well. And then also to, you know, if the only point of contact, and this goes back to communication, is when you're providing feedback, and that tends to be like, you know, constructive feedback or feedback that's critical, that also can weigh on people. And so it's being an effective communicator means also being present and communicating in non sort of critical moments as well. And so developing relationships with your members uh, so that, you know, they see you as a human, you see them as a human. And then so then when they, that feedback comes back, back to them, they're not seeing it as, oh, my boss is just so hard or so critical. Like they just like, you know, all they care about is like trying to get this quality standard. They don't care about me. And that can lead to that, again, that distrust and, and like lack of a connection and, and, and motivation from employees. That's actually really funny that you said that because our next question was basically um, like a situational question on how to motivate an underperforming team member. And you basically just like said that perfectly. Is there anything <laughs> you want to like add on to now that we like officially asked the question or? Yeah, no, sure. Um, so if there's, you know, a, a particular member on your, on your team that is not performing well, and I, I can, I have a couple of examples of this actually from when I was, you know, working with uh, UConn Athletics. And so there are a couple of times, you know, when athletes kind of are not appearing their normal self, they're, they're not maybe as checked in into to the, you know, academic sides of, side of things. And folks are like, oh, I don't know what's going on with them, right? Like they're just, they don't seem into it this week. And you sit down and if you have those personal connections and that's something I really worked on uh, with, with the athletes is like, let's get to know each other first and then we'll worry about academics second, right? Because it's a long semester. Like we'll, we'll figure out what needs to get done and we'll get it done. Uh, but you know, what's more important is that I know who you are, you know who I am. And then ultimately we can rely on that relationship to be successful in the long term. And so there's a couple of times uh, where one of the, the athletes, uh, you know, from Florida, uh, there's a hurricane that was hitting Florida at the time. His family lived directly in the path. And like, you know, everyone's sort of saying, oh, he's so checked out, so checked out. And it's like, hey, you know, you know, his family's in Florida and like the hurricane's there. Like, have we just checked in on him? It's like, how is he doing? Like, how's his family doing? Like, can we support him in some capacity? And we can worry about academics second. And that goes a long way to, you know, making them feel connected and, and feeling more like an individual. And that carries over to any situation um, in terms of, you know, members of an organization. If you take the time, you know, even if it's just like having group coffee breaks and you're sitting down and you're getting to know who your employees are, who, who your members are on a more, that more personal level, and it doesn't need to be super deep. You don't need to know their life history, but you know, if you just have that connection with them, it, it can go a long way um, to motivating folks. And I, I feel it all goes back to, you know, the wording of the feedback when you when you have to give a feedback, when you give constructive like criticism to them, um, you want to do it in a way that you know your team members, you know what motivates them because everybody's motivated by different words or different um, leadership styles. So you, you got to be, as a leader, you got to be aware of what motivates them and try to uh, cater to that. But I feel like another skill that's really underrated is many times, um, you're, you're not the, the, the boss at the organization, you're working for somebody. And the ability to take criticism that might be really harsh and at times uh, sound really mean, 
being able to take that and digest it and think what's something that I can take away from something that really that sounds like mean can I take is there some truth in it can I take something out of there because that that's really great for improvement yeah I and and taking taking criticism is hard uh especially if maybe you're working on a project you support a lot of time and effort in and um all of a sudden some comes in and just red lines the heck out of it right and that can be really hard and and uh i'll say this is being you know a former phd student and going through this process it you get so numb to this uh because you'll spend so much time writing your dissertation or writing projects and you think it's this the best thing in the world and your advisor comes in and tells you to delete about you know 98 of it and then you know rewrite the rest right and so you're just you get pretty used to taking that hard feedback but when you have strong relationships, like I had, I was very fortunate. I had really strong relationships with my mentors and my advisors is that, you know, they were just, they were doing it to make, make me stronger, make me better. Right. And then that goes back to like, you know, they demonstrated that strong leadership capability where when we sat down, it wasn't, okay, let's just get to work. Let's just like, you know, look at what you've produced. It is, how's everything going? How's the family doing? How are, you know, let's, what are some things that you're worried about right now? Or what do you want to talk about? Right. And so they really modeled that for me so that, you know, I understood that when they were giving me that feedback, they cared about my growth as an individual. And also too, you know, there's something to be said, you can't always have those deep relationships with every supervisor, right? Like you might be in an organization where a supervisor is managing a lot of folks and you're, you know, the second level of leadership before you get to the general, general population, being able to sit with things you don't always have to provide a response you don't always have to um you know respond in the in the moment it's okay just to sit and listen and be like hey what are they actually telling me and then you know how can i actually implement this what what do i feel is is based in in something i i can change what is something else that maybe i just you know what like i didn't put my best foot forward this time i know i can do better and what are some of the skill sets that i actually need to work on that they were communicating to me yeah, those little like check-ins, I feel, I mean, at least, I don't know, I didn't assume that like businesses did that because it's always like, oh, like time is money. But I think that's like putting the time into your employees and stuff is really, and their health is really going to make the difference, just like you said. Um, yeah, moving on from that topic, we're going to switch more to UMass and kind of your time here. Um, so we were wondering, what are some of the lessons you've learned from teaching leadership at UMass? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, some things I've learned from teaching leadership at UMass. Uh, I feel so, um, I've learned, hmm, this is, um, this is a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for this one. Uh, to be hundred percent honest with you, I think that, I think I just, I've, really it's provided me the opportunity to reflect on my own leadership um and i think that like the biggest thing for me and and i and and taking the time to solicit feedback from my students actually is um you know you all as students whether it's at the master's level or at the undergraduate level crave feedback um and as a junior faculty member there's a lot of pressure on us to to produce in a lot of different ways so we, we gotta be good teachers we have to produce really good research. Um, we need to be involved in the community and that that can uh, take a lot of time. And so finding the time to sit down and provide that that really good feedback and that constructive feedback to make you all better, it's something I've had to reflect a lot on. And I think that has been my biggest learning 
um, something I've learned a lot about in terms of like, okay, well, what, what strategies and, and systems can I put in place to not only get to know my students, uh, right, and then to be able then to motivate them and then provide that, that feedback in a way that is going to be beneficial for the students uh, and each student individually as well, so. Well, you mentioned that you do research and um, what are some of the trends that you have found through your research or some really good lessons that you've learned from researching college athletics? Yeah, um, so I, I look at how normative and cognitive systems uh, influence organizational behavior. And so sometimes those can be overt cognitive systems uh, and sometimes they can be covert cognitive systems, right? And so a good example of this is like, um, if you follow college athletics, you may have heard of the, the two concepts of revenue generating sports and non-revenue generating sports. And um, something that's interesting is that when you have those types of cognitive, cognitive systems in place, right, like that's a pretty overt cognitive system, it can influence the way that organizations make decisions, how they craft policy, what they uh, turn their attention to, those sorts of things. And, and that's important because... Um, as someone, you know, who's an advocate uh, for, you know, just sports in general, uh, but also to like investing in women's sports and investing in our Olympic sports and those sorts of things. There's no other industry that I'm, I'm aware of where the entire industry will categorize a product as non-revenue generating, right? Maybe certain organizations may say, you know, as one student said to me, well, Costco gives away hot dogs for, you know, less than a profit. It's like, that's cool, but not every place that sells hot dogs, sells hot dogs at a loss, right? Certain organizations may, but not every organization does. Whereas we've come, for some reason, we've we've developed this mindset within college athletics that it's okay for us to have certain sports that we're just going to write off as non-revenue generating, right? And the whole industry does that. That's to a disservice to those athletes and to those sports in the sense that we don't have to sit here and generate millions and, or billions of dollars in profit but we should be investing in those sports as if they could generate revenue, um, as if that they as if they deserve the opportunity to grow and become something that just as big as or close to you know college basketball or college football. And, and when we do that, when we change that mindset, then we could actually grow those sports and grow the attention paid to those sports and, and that sort of thing. And so um, I've seen some of that through my research. I've also seen how. Um, those sorts of meaning systems can affect college athletes way of thinking. For instance, college athletes will say, well, you know, why do I care about name, image, and likeness? I compete in a non-revenue generating sport. And so why, who is going to pay me, right? I'm just a rower. I'm just a softball player. I'm just a soccer player. And, and I think that's, again, that meeting system has infiltrated individuals to undervalue themselves. And I think that we, that's a disservice to those athletes. Yeah, that research is incredibly interesting too, because it also varies on tons of factors, like, you know, specifically mostly gender as well. So it's really cool that they want to pay attention to that. Um, well, recent developments in the NIL legislation have really changed how college athletics work in general. Um, we talked with Frank Martin about it recently, and mm. it really changed his job. And, and it's because he, he's got to do recruiting differently now. And a lot of college programs are, are going to be affected by it. How do you think it's going to affect the competitiveness of college athletics? Um, not that greatly. 
Um, the schools that are the top of their field, um, they have the, inf the, the resources to invest in an NIL infrastructure. Um, and so a lot of college athletic department funds does come from generating revenue from media rights, ticket sales, that sort of thing. But a significant portion also came historically from boosters or from donors who had an interest and wanted to invest in the athletic department. What we're seeing already is that instead of all of those, that booster money or the donor money going directly to the athletic department, which was then spent on coaches' salaries, facilities, maybe uh, really cool opportunities for the athletes to travel abroad or something like that, it's now going to these NIL collectives, which are just nonprofit or for-profit companies that are then working to create name, image, and likeness opportunities for the athletes, right? So some of these that are really popular are, you know, um, I believe Clemson's Collective, which I'm blanking on their name right now, but they pay athletes to go to charitable events. Um, and so they are raising the funds, right? They, that's from those donors who used to give directly to the athletic department. They're just shifting that money to the collective. And then that money is then going directly to the athletes. So the schools, the big schools, your Alabamas, your USC's, your Clemson's, uh, even schools like UConn or Villanova, Gonzaga that have big basketball, uh, you know, donors and boosters, like they're just shifting those dollars and they, cause they already have the, the resources and now they're building that infrastructure. Schools that are smaller, your mid-majors or your, your small uh, non-football schools that are in basketball, they're already behind the eight ball. They might be trying, but again, they might not already have those resources to shift like those big schools do. So overall, I don't think it's going to affect the competitive balance greatly. It might a little bit. You might get uh, small schools that all of a sudden rise up because they have the ability to mobilize their alumni to create uh, an NIL collective and initiative. But I think those are going to be more sort of like rare than become the standard. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, but yeah, that's just like, I, don't know. I, I find this stuff super interesting and uh, I can't wait to take this class and what you do. Um, but our last question was just what are, if you have any, if you have any um, book recommendations on like sport leadership or leadership, I know maybe it's more of like a niche thing, but. Um, no, I mean, the reality is, is every great coach has uh, written a book about leadership. Uh, so there's a lot for you all to dig into, but some, some that I actually really like is uh, Reach for the Summit. That's by Pat Summit. So that's the former Lady Vols head coach. Um, She's a very successful coach there. I find that one to be much more just like a kind of like a motivational book rather than about practices, right? Like, so just, you know, really laying out the groundwork for, you know, like how to, work, you know, you should work hard, you should be disciplined, those sorts of things. So like you're kind of generic, but I think it's still a good read for folks to pick up. Uh, the next one is, is Legacy. It's what the All Blacks can teach us about the business of life. And that one's by James Kerr. And so the New Zealand All Blacks are one of the most successful international rugby teams uh, to ever exist. And so it actually just documents how they structure their entire organization and what they do to build culture. And so I think that's a really good one um, for, you know, anyone to pick up and read and to, to look at like how, how has the All Blacks sustained success over decades? Um, and so uh, that one's really interesting as well. And then the last one is, is 11 Rings by Phil Jackson. And so Phil Jackson obviously was the coach 
uh, for the Chicago Bulls during the 90s. That's when you had Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan there. And then he was also the coach uh, for the Lakers, the LA Lakers, uh, when um, uh, Shaquille O'Neal and uh, Kobe Bryant were there, as well as some other, other combinations as well. And so that one's really interesting because um, he provides insight into how you lead big personalities. Right. And so that one can be, you know, if you're thinking about if you're going to go into an organization or you get to a point in your leadership level where, you know, I'm working with individuals who, you know, they're also very successful in the career. So how do I manage their their personalities and their sense of, it, of success and, and essentially their egos as well? Uh, and so he provides really good insight in, into how he's been able to work with those individuals. And, you know, if you think about, you know, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, Michael Jordan, those are big personalities, but he was able to uh, bring together these teams to be teams that then led to led them to being successful. And so I think that's a really great one for people to pick up. Yeah, I, I've read books by Sir Alex Ferguson too, and he he wrote about all his career and, and he's been a leader his career. He, he led in, in a dressing room full of stars and I feel so, that's something that everybody can apply to their workplace and their life. But um, Amaya said that was the last question, but it, it actually isn't. There's one question that we ask every guest at the end, and it's, um, what is one question you would have liked us to ask you, and how would you have answered? Oh, um, that's a good one. Uh, I'm not too sure. Um, a question I would have liked. Uh, Maybe we could have gotten into a little bit like of like value-based leadership or something like that. Um, I talk a lot about that in terms of when I, especially with my master students and, and the organizational behavior. Um, I don't know what what the question would have been, but essentially, uh, you know, the entire sort of semester we really focused on how stemming from leadership and leadership setting the values of an organization that then should filter into the culture and then culture filters into your strategy and outputs and all that sort of thing. And um, a big, a big and a really important quote, and this is something we, I don't think we have the time here uh, to dig into, but is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, and I'll leave it there for folks to mull on and to think about what that could mean. Well, that's a great quote. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to digest that too. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. And we're going to meet in person soon at Isenberg. So. <laughs> Great. Sounds good. All right. Bye.